Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 230. We're talking about meniscus injuries. The meniscus is a crescent-shaped fibrocartilaginous structure located between the femur and the tibia. While many attribute their knee pain to a meniscus injury, a number of studies show that meniscus tears are quite common in those without knee pain. For example, in a meta-analysis of 63 studies involving MRIs on over 5,000 asymptomatic knees in adult patients, the prevalence of meniscus tears in participants 40 years of age and older was 19%. Similarly, among asymptomatic collegiate and professional basketball players, MRI revealed evidence of meniscal abnormalities in 20% and articular cartilage abnormalities in 50%. In this week's podcast, Dr. Derek Miles and I talk about meniscus injuries and knee pain, when people should seek medical attention for knee pain, when surgery may be a good idea, how to come back from a knee injury, and much, much more. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy. And honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether I'm I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, They also have golf stuff. If you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double, you know, in my day-to-day life? It's really, really good stuff. It looks clean and, uh, you know, look good, feel good, play well. That's, uh, that's my motto. So go to Viore. Uh, all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint hundred percent. You can go to their website, viore.com backslash barbell and get 20% off your first order. All right, we're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. It's episode 229. We're talking about meniscus injuries with Dr. Derek Miles. Happy to have you on this podcast, the article that's about to go up on the website, uh, meniscus pain and meniscus injuries, how to manage them. Uh, is going to be super, super useful. Do get a ton of questions on this. And I'm not just saying that. On social media, it has become uh, popular to say, a lot of people have been asking me about, and then the narrator comes in, Nobody has been asking, but this is true. We get questions specifically on meniscus injuries. Um, so this article and this podcast should be uh, very, very useful. Before we get into that, we do have new stuff on the website. Bodybuilding 2 template is out. We've restocked supplements, new PeriRx with caffeine. Uh, it's been reformulated. Uh, we have the non-caffeinated version that should be in stock by the end of this week, potentially early next week, depending on how our informed for sport testing goes. WayRx in vanilla is back in stock. We've restocked the street tees. Uh, last time I ch- we had restock them for a third time because the last time I announced them, they sold out again. So if you're looking for one of those tees, head over to the website, check that out. Um, new articles on the website. When this goes up, the belt article is the last one we published. The meniscus article is going to be up to complement this podcast. And we do have live in-person seminars coming up this weekend. You guys will be in Bozeman, Montana. So I, I've, I feel like if you haven't made your travel plans yet, 
but you happen to live in or around the Montana area and you want to hang out with our pain and rehab team, head to Bozeman. We've got some spots available. Uh, should be a good seminar up there. And if nothing else, it's going to be beautiful. Like I just, I just came back from Yosemite and I'm like, I feel like Bozeman is like this, but maybe just more of it. I don't know. Have you ever been to Montana? Yes. Uh, I'm looking forward. I've been there in 15 years. My, one of the requisites for going early was I wanted to get some hiking in before the course. Uh, if you're in the area, you want to join the pain and rehab team for their two day live in person seminar. They'll be there this weekend. Uh, they'll also be in Los Angeles at Monarch's, uh, fitness clubs, new or Monarch, Monarch athletics club, new their new facility in Los Angeles. They'll be there in September, uh, for our two day health and performance seminar. Uh, Dr. Baraki, myself and the rest of the crew will be at untamed strength in Sacramento, California in October. And then in January, we'll be down under in Sydney, and we've added a location in Perth. So if you're on the west coast of Australia, you're over there with uh, the Kawakas. Uh, I forget what island it's off of. Is it Rottenest Island? Rotten? I don't know. If you're listening to this and you live over there and you're like, you guys are idiots, that's true. Geographically, that is 100% true. But in any case, we will be in Perth. So those are all available on the website for you to sign up. We'd like to see you at one of our seminars. So let's get in to this week's podcast, we're talking about meniscus injuries. Before we start, Dr. Miles, what even is the meniscus? Like what, what is it? Uh, where are they located, etc.? Well, it's crescent-shaped fibrocartilage in the knee. Um, meniscus in general is more of just a term. It's just we refer to it specifically here as the cartilage in the, or the fibrocartilage in the knee. So it serves as two C-shaped gaskets would be the common vernacular that would increase some of the congruency between your femur and tibia. Um, You have two uh, medial and a lateral um, as far as their function, same on each side, slightly different shaped uh, as far as how it behaves. Traditionally, we've talked about classifying it into its vascularity. So the inner third being considered the white-white zone where it's mostly avascular, middle third being red-white where there is some vascularity, and the outer third obviously being the red-red where you have more vascularity. It was traditionally thought that tears more in the red-red zone were able to heal because turns out having a blood supply is really good for healing. Um, the research has kind of shifted on what constitutes healing, what the base rate is of the injuries. And I'm sure we're going to get into all of that as we move forward today. So is this like, is this like if you're looking at a tree that's been cut down in cross section and it has the rings, right? So like in the center, you're calling that the white zone, just less blood flow or avascular, no blood flow. And then as you get progressively closer to the edge, to the margin, there's more and more blood flow. Is that a good way to, to characterize it? That holds to a point, um, but really, so meniscus are, are kind of wedge curve shaped and, and they get thicker towards that outer edge as well. So yeah, I, I guess I, I would accept that the closer to the middle, the less blood supply there is. Yeah. I'm just trying to give the listeners at home, you know, if they're thinking about, all right, I know that I have menisci between my knees. There are also these crescent shaped fibrocartilaginous structures elsewhere in the body when they're trying to, again, increase the sort of surface area between two like non-perfect or imperfect bony surfaces. So like they're in the wrist, they're in the TMJ, the te- that temporomandibular joint in your mouth and things of that nature. But we're going to talk about the ones in the knees. It just, there's this piece of tissue that kind of, again, makes these mating surfaces uh, a little bit easier for them to articulate or bend or move amongst each other. And they're made out of fibrocartilage. And so listeners at home are like, I know what those fractions of words mean. I know what something fibrous, I can kind of think about that. I know what cartilage is roughly, but how do you like differentiate between like fibrocartilage and like collagen? So people think tendons, ligaments, they think, okay, collagen. Uh, How would you differentiate fibrocartilage to collagen? Well, they're on the same spectrum. It would be like uh, saying a collagen is a letter and fibrocartilage is a word. Like you, you, it just depends on what letters go into it to make the word. And that would probably be the easiest analogy I could compare it to because once again, what you said, ligaments, tendons, menisci are all fibrocartilaginous. It just depends on the distribution of collagen types. And even within that, really the function that makes a lot of them work so well with load distribution is the fact that they're mostly water. And that's 
contingent upon even the shape of collagen being able to draw in water and allow things to distribute load more evenly. Yeah, there are multiple different types of collagen, and each one of these different types has basically different applications as far as things are best suited towards. Multiple different types, slightly different chemical structures, which give them different sort of features or characteristics. So we know that they're in the knees. We know we know that meniscus menisci are made out of fibrocartilage. We know that it's designed to increase the surface area, the mating surfaces, the ease of movement between two joints. Uh, can act as like a shock absorber, and you know, uh, uh, transmit forces between two different bones in this case the femur and the both the tibia and the fibula how does it change over time you're born with meniscus menisci what happens to them over a lifetime in general well really i think if you look back at the embryology and i may be speaking a little out of turn but it's the internet so someone will correct me uh really if i recall you don't have meniscus as much when you're first born because there's some of the embryologic discussion about whether a plica exists. Don't want to get too far off topic, but it really is kind of the side of the joint on the tibia, the side of the joint on the femur coming together. And then as you develop and have load bearing, you start to transition into having those structures. Yeah. If you go really back into the embryology stuff, you're like, okay, so this mesoderm differentiates into different structures. So, so, but I, but I guess what what I'm getting at is that, you know, throughout adulthood, people are, are, they tend to be made aware of the fact that they have a meniscus because invariably knee pain with, you know, it's, it's highly likely that people in their lifetime will experience knee pain. And if they query the internet or their friend or both, people will invariably chalk that up to a meniscus related, uh, uh, sort of pain symptom. But so I'm getting at do meniscus, do menisci wear out over time? Do they change over time in thickness, in sort of structure uh, throughout a normal sort of lifespan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything changes. And what you tend to see is it is contingent upon the activity to which you're exposing it to. Here, I feel like you almost have to have the qualifier as well of inactivity is an activity and causes a set of changes. If you look at the evidence, there's a lot of studies on this. Um, one found that among individuals with no knee symptoms in their 40s, 30% of them had a meniscus tear and asymptomatic, no symptoms whatsoever. Um, they've also looked at this across collegiate basketball players, found that among athletes with no symptoms, 50% had meniscus changes in the preseason, increasing to 62% in the postseason. Um, but it, it kind of comes down to the easier something is to image, the more likely we are to blame it as the cause. If you can see it, it's obviously the problem. But they've also done some really interesting studies looking at distance runners, um, specifically like marathoners and ultra runners, showing that there are meniscal changes after long runs, but they're transient. And I think that's the part that gets missed a lot of times because to that, you're going to wear out your knee. Well, if you have a hard lifting session and we biopsy your muscle the day after, you're going to see changes that we would, you know, increased inflammation or whatever. But we know that that is part of the overall process that drives adaptation. So you do have some of these changes that would be like natural history, but it is related also to your participation in sport, whatever you're doing load wise. And it's, it's not just a, a one-to-one ratio. Yeah, I think that you and I have kind of rapped about this as like this stress adaptation sort of thing. It's like, um, you know, you get loaded or you're exposed to some sort of activity or whatever, and a number of musculoskeletal sort of tissues change in response to what you just did. Uh, for example, if you're involved in resistance training, we know that the muscles will break down and subsequently need to remodel. But yeah, like you said, if you take a biopsy of a muscle fiber, during that process, it's going to look all messed up. You're like, oh my gosh, you created all this muscular damage. If you take an image of somebody's lumbar spine directly after loading it, you might see some areas where there's bony remodeling going on. Same thing if you could, if you're imaging people's ligaments or tendons or whatever. The question is, are some of these stress uh, sort of responses pathological or are they normal? 
right? And so that, that that's what you're seeing on a, a lot of imaging, I think, is is either stress adaptations that are likely to be beneficial to support the activity that a person's doing outside of maybe acute trauma. And acute trauma is another sort of spectrum, I think. Um, so for example, if you have somebody that twists and falls or is hit, uh, you know, violently or whatever, I think everyone would agree that that acute trauma is likely to cause some sort of pathology more likely than some graded exposure to physical activity that is still causing trauma on some level, but in a graded manner that is likely to be dealt with appropriately by the body's recovery, remodeling, repair sort of mechanisms. Does that jibe with your kind of understanding of this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's part of what sometimes makes like these types of pieces harder to write is because it really is contingent upon knowing the history of the athlete before you can make recommendations. You know, someone who sport is contingent upon high deceleration and cutting forces, likely it's going to take a little bit of a different mechanism to cause an issue than an individual whose sport is walking to their mailbox and back twice a day. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we see this across different imaging related studies on different sports. So youth weightlifters, for example, their cruciate ligaments, the ACL, for example, gets thicker and bigger as sort of an adaptive response to the activities that they've been doing. You see vertebral end plates in the spine become thicker in resistance training. You see uh, the dominant arm of racket sport players get a little bit longer. And at some point, if you were to image the, the bones of the forearm, for example, you would see areas of radiolucency while the bone is like remodeling. But the whole point here is that you can image the meniscus and identify quote unquote abnormalities, but putting that into clinical context is more difficult. Uh, it's easier. And in some cases I would estimate lazier to ascribe pain and dysfunction to some sort of abnormality on imaging. That's not always the case, particularly if it's preceded by some sort of uh, acute trauma that is, uh, let's just call it nefarious in origin rather than, you know, acute trauma from exercise that's planned, graded, and otherwise well-controlled. Um, and so the rest of this podcast, we're going to talk about what can happen to the meniscus, what sort of symptoms do people experience with uh, sort of uh, damage to the meniscus and then kind of what to do about it. Uh, but I think it's well, you said it well earlier. There are a lot of people who are asymptomatic, meaning they have no knee symptoms, but have some sort of identifiable abnormality in their menisci upon imaging to seemingly no effect. And so I think if we start from that understanding of like, yeah, sometimes you can find stuff on imaging that doesn't relate to the clinical function or, or, or pain or whatever, I think that's a good place to start from. So, all right, we're talking about like injuries of the meniscus. What are the most common ones? And, and I say that not to get you to do this whole like over, you know, scoping review of all the different types of injuries to the meniscus. But I think when people think about meniscal injuries, they're thinking about tears and in particular, things like a bucket handle tear, they might, somebody might've heard of that or been diagnosed themselves. Um, but how do you think about meniscal injuries, broadly speaking, and then how would you break it down for a patient? Uh, really, it depends on the classification system you ascribe to, but at its simplest, you know, would this fall in the degenerative fraying? Is there an actual vertical or horizontal tear? Has it migrated? The, the tear or piece itself. Um, one of the things, if you look at positive predictive for an increased indication for some type of surgical intervention is that locking in the knee. And the general thought there is, you know, if you have a loose hanging portion of the tear that is blocking the joint articulating properly, then that may be indicated. But really anything that falls in the fraying or non-displaced tear and there's an absence of locking, uh, I would likely slant a little more towards the evidence saying that's a carry on or at least attempt conservative first. Gotcha. So what you're, what you're saying just for the listeners at home is that if there's not a piece that is either hanging off or otherwise displaced, moving around something like that, that's causing locking of the knee, you're not really sure what to make of any abnormality of the meniscus on imaging because you have less confidence that it actually is contributing to somebody's pain or dysfunction uh, and subsequently what you need to do about it, which means that you would effectively 
slant towards conservative management, non-surgical management for that individual compared to somebody who presented with locking or otherwise identification that, hey, this thing's moving around in there. Uh, we should probably go go fix it. Well, and, and even if it is moving around, but there's no locking, I mean, there's no real indication for imaging at that point. And yes, it obviously is my opinion, but this is where I would do the, I'm a physical therapist. So that that's a little beyond my scope, but it does jive with most of the evidence or actually the entire bolus of the evidence at this point saying that in the absence of that locking surgical intervention does not beat conservative treatment when you're looking at three months, six month, 12 month outcomes. Yeah. And outcomes important would be like actual pain with activities of daily life, uh, pain and function and sport. level of function. Yeah, yeah. All that sort of stuff. But yeah. So when we think about injuries to the meniscus, there are multiple different categorization or classification systems available based on uh, anatomical location. So is it towards the front, anteriors, towards the back, posterior, towards the side, lateral? Was it secondary to trauma? Again, of maybe nefarious intent, uh, or is it more chronic degenerative sort of thing? Uh, and then which way, if there is some abnormality, which direction is it running? And then there are specific names depending on the location. So for example, if you tear part of the meniscus off the top of the tibia, that's called like a root tear. There can be a bucket handle tear, again, referring to a different specific location. Um, all of that, I think for the person who's maybe dealing with knee pain right now that they're attributing to the meniscus is kind of irrelevant, so to speak, because it doesn't really change what you do again, unless you have this catching or locking of the joint secondary to a bona fide, you know, meniscus injury that you can see on imaging. Does that, is that a good way to sum it up? You think? Yeah, I think the indications are if you are having trouble bearing weight on your knee, if there is a locking sensation. And if there is a mechanism of injury, like that, that's certainly on the, this needs further or medical evaluation. As far as how it happens, like again, these quote unquote injuries to the meniscus, knowing full well that it is possible for people without knee symptoms, uh, to have abnormalities in their meniscus on imaging. What's like the usual mechanism uh, for the meniscus to actually get one of these abnormalities upon imaging with either MRI, CT, something like that? Uh, deceleration with twisting is the big one, but it, it does also tend to go along with being in deeper knee flexion is what the, the thought typically is. So um, the most classic one that I can remember off the top of my head was a higher level athlete that had a meniscus tear bending down to pet his cat. So, you know, you're not talking about a huge deceleration moment at that point, but getting in deep knee flexion in that just right position can sometimes get you at that right biomechanical side. But I also, to kind of circle back a little bit to what you were saying with classification, uh, I would slant more towards, we probably don't need to get in the weeds there as much because it, anytime we start really getting into the classification systems, if we list off 10 okay things to have and one not so okay thing to have, all of us naturally, our first instinct is, well, I obviously have the worst one. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes getting in the weeds in those classification systems, it, it still tends to drive that feeling like we need to seek imaging, even though the probability of that being the case, I think the incidence of bucket handle tears is, is something like under 10%. Yeah. 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 That's that, that jives with my understanding of, of the issue. I, I guess what I'm, one of the major questions then would be given this sort of, you know, the issue with, with ascribing knee pain to a meniscus injury or abnormality, so to speak, like what is the connection between knee pain and meniscus injury? Like how, I guess, confident or reliable is that relationship? Because people will come and say, I got this old meniscus injury and my, you know, I got a trick knee or something like, is that, is that something that's really common or, or do you think people are, are sort of overstating, uh, their knee pain to, to a meniscus injury? Well, I don't think they're overstating it. It's their pain, but I think attributing it to the meniscus is, is probably 
a little more problematic. The, the study people always talk about is there was a, a surgeon who allowed some or allowed one of his colleagues to scope his knee without anesthesia. So he went in and did an arthroscopic procedure and just started poking around on the structures in his knee. And he was rating like how much it hurt to poke on the structures and, you know, poking on the meniscus didn't really hurt that much to him. Now, obviously there's a lot of factors going into all of this, but, you know, we talked in the beginning that a lot of your meniscus is avascular. And if we're going to take like the most pathoanatomical stance we possibly can, anything that's avascular and aneural, you can't really feel much anyway. So saying your meniscus hurts is kind of a misnomer out of the gate. So if, if people have knee pain and they're attributing it to a meniscus injury and it's not due to some sort of recent trauma, is that valid? Not that the pain is or isn't valid because the pain certainly is. That's their experience. But this sort of like, okay, well, my knees have just degenerated or worn out over time, specifically my meniscus. It's, it's you know, like they say in osteoarthritis, it's bone on bone. I don't have any more of these uh, uh, menisci to, to help me out. Is that something we see? Is that a common cause of knee pain? Uh, I mean, the literature would say not so much. And it's funny that you would make that the bone on bone reference there, because if you're talking about doing a meniscectomy, you're, you're basically taking out tissue whose function is to assist with two bones not articulating. So the procedure you're doing in, in they've known that taking out meniscus from knees contributes to the onset of osteoarthritis for 80 years now. So like, why are we doing procedures that, bank towards that type of outcome, especially when they haven't been shown to be superior for what conservative treatment is. Yeah. Particularly if there's no locking, uh, when somebody's going yeah. into surgery. Yeah. Uh, I just, again, I, just my common experience prior to medical training is that effectively, if anybody had any like chronic long lasting knee pain, they pretty much always chalked it up to a meniscus issue. Ah, back in college, I did, I, hurt my meniscus and now it flares up or even my father, you know, it's bone on bone because he had a meniscectomy and he's like, I don't have any meniscus. So that makes sense why my knees hurt. And it's kind of like trying to, trying to do some education and, you know, right off the bat, when you have that understanding of what's happening, man, it's, that's tough. I mean, the story I always try and push is, you know, if we, look at every joint, there are passive and dynamic restraints. So passive being the bones, the ligaments, your meniscus, dynamic being the muscles around it. If we've had some type of insults to the passive structures, well, probably going to need to rely on the dynamic ones a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So really the, the stronger and more control we can get you, likely the better you're going to function. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on board with that. Okay, so let's say that somebody has an acute onset of knee pain. Uh, we'll say this could be due to trauma or it could just cropped up out of nowhere with no really identifiable sort of incident. When do they need to seek medical attention? When is it they got to bypass WebMD, they got to bypass the Barbell Medicine article, pain and training, what do? When do they need to go see a doctor? Uh, if you can't bear weight on it for more than 48 hours, I th- Actually, I would say if, if you look at the like what we talk about for the Ottawa ankle rules, if you can't bear weight for more than four steps, I would say probably should go get that ruled out in the ED that there's not something going on. But also, I think here when we talk about weight bearing modifications in the article, I mentioned we're probably better off doing something like weight bearing is tolerated gait pattern. We're using crutches to assist walking, not to completely offload. Um But once again, to your question, if you can't put weight on it, if like we talk about trace one plus two plus swelling in the medical parlance, um, that doesn't mean anything to the lay person. If I tend to use citrus, so kumquat, lemon, orange, grapefruit, if your knee is swelling in like the orange grapefruit categories, that probably warrants getting it looked at. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would strengthen that recommendation. Uh, that's especially true when there's been a recent trauma or like identifiable sort of event rather than like, yeah, I was squatting just normal as can be. And then afterwards my knee, sw- you know, 
I had no pain really, but my knee swelled up. It's like, that is not the typical situation. Doesn't mean it's not possible that there's some sort of, you know, underlying pathology going on, but that is an, would be an unusual story for uh, an isolated sort of meniscus injury that just cropped up out of nowhere. Um, But yeah, inability to bear weight for a prolonged period of time, plus or minus if there's locking of the joint, would recommend evaluation. I don't think people need to go to the emergency room for that, but definitely scheduling a an appointment to be evaluated by your medical professional with appropriate referral afterwards. Um, so yeah, my three are like trauma with these symptoms, inability to bear weight, locking, uh, and then the effusion. So how swollen is it? And I like your citrus scale, <laughs> the the orange grapefruit sort of thing. If you're if you're at that sort of level, yeah, all of those things would probably deserve to be worked up. Although again, outside of trauma. I start thinking other things than, oh, it's a new meniscus injury that's contributing to this particular issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, if you get random joint swelling, all of a sudden you're starting to ask the, like, are you running a fever type questions? So totally. Yeah. You look at, or some sort of uh, other arthropathy that could be potentially uh, contributing. Um, okay. So let's say that somebody has knee pain they have had some sort of recent trauma but they have no locking uh and they can bear weight although maybe not fully that to me slants towards conservative management would you agree with that oh 100 okay so when we say conservative management people are like that just means do nothing just sit around wait for it to go away like uh, i think that's a misunderstanding so when we say conservative management when you say conservative management what does that actually entail for somebody with this sort of presentation? Well, the first thing we want to focus on is getting symptoms and swelling under control. So trying to modify activities accordingly, whether that be through weight bearing, there is some evidence for utilization of compressive sleeves and elevation. But really, I think after injuries like this, the question isn't like, what can we do? It's what can't we do? So Mm -hmm. we may need to modify squatting, walking, like whatever the activity the person is or is doing and enjoys doing, but odds are there's still a bunch of things we can do to keep you active along the way. And conservative tends to slant towards we're going to hyper-focus on the joint and we're only going to do what is tolerable and address those symptoms and everything else be damned. Whereas it's, yeah, man, let's do what we can, see what you can tolerate and scale it accordingly and then try and remember the fact that you have another leg, a trunk and two upper extremities we can stay active with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. So from top to bottom, we're really addressing activity modification. And so at the very top or, or depending on how you're looking at the very bottom base level, we might modify walking, meaning that crutches may be involved to sort of offload a little bit, uh, for that, that leg, uh, that's been affected. Uh, and then as you kind of either go up or down the scale, depending on your perspective, you would adjust other activities. So somebody was doing bilateral squatting without any restrictions at, you know, a volitional tempo. Well, now it might be a leg press if they can tolerate that with both legs. If they can't tolerate that, then maybe it's a single leg stuff, uh, for the unaffected limb. And then for the affected limb, it might be, you know, straight leg raises. It might be something isometric. It might be, um, you know, leg extensions, which is a lower stakes sort of movement pattern that doesn't require balance and sort of dynamic control of the limb. There are multiple different options. It all just kind of depends where people get into that. And we'll kind of address that more specifically in the next section. But I think, again, when we say conservative management, people just say, ah, I don't do anything. It'll go away. I'll pop some NSAIDs and, uh, you know, still send it. But, but again, w- depending on the individual, what they can and can't do at the moment, we're going to modify everything from walking all the way up to like full on activity. Is there anything that people should absolutely 10 out of 10 not be doing if they have a presentation like this? There's something that's strictly off limits because these injuries tend to happen a lot in like high velocity sort of sports plus or minus impact with another uh, competitor. They're like, Oh, well, can I play soccer for example, or can I play football? It's like, well, if you're really trying to manage a meniscus injury that's significantly affecting your life and your ability to move, I don't know that you need to ask somebody that question because you already know the answer. If you can do everything without restriction, 
outside of that particular activity, I don't know that I can with full confidence say, ah, you shouldn't play. At the same time, if there are significant limitations to your gait, how you walk normally, <laughs> to your ability to exercise in a controlled, graded exposure sort of fashion, I will. That I think it's tough to sort of let the leash out even further and let you do unrestricted activity where the demands are far, far less sterile, uh, if that makes sense, more dynamic and more uh, ever-changing. Well, and we tend to kind of break it down into practice, participation, and play. And do I think if you're walking around with an anti or like a painful gait pattern, you need to be out in competition? No. Are there some things you could probably still do at practice? Yeah. It's all grading it according to that kind of what are we allowed to do? And if you're reporting four out of 10 knee symptoms and are still in the lemon style of swelling, like if it's the gold medal game in the world cup, yeah, we'll have a competition, go play. But like, if it's a Wisconsin Sunday rec league, like, come on, dude, is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. It, and I think that's you know, people just view conservative or surgical management as, as pretty binary, where conservative is do nothing and surgical is do everything, fire the cannon at it. And the reality, it's more shades of gray. Um, there's just a lot more options under activity modification and conservative management overall than just, hey, sit around, do nothing, it'll get better, it'll go away. Um, and so with moving on to like the surgical considerations, we've talked about locking a number of times now. Uh, but also when people have these like persistent joint effusions or joint swelling that again on your citrus scale would be, you know, orange or grapefruit, if that is happening all the time, every time that you are active, um, and, or you're having knee sort of locking or catching that probably warrants an orthopedic surgeon referral just to see like, Hey, does this, would this benefit from being surgerized? Uh, but is there, does that usually occur after like a period of conservative management or does that sort of declare itself right off the bat? It, it really depends. If someone has no history of any type of knee pain, that might push me a little bit more that way. But if someone has a history of like a prior meniscal surgery or especially something like uh, an OATS procedure or like some type of uh, cartilage debridement, then that would probably not well it wouldn't probably i would likely slant a lot harder towards the conservative management side of it just because you you i'm remiss to use the word naturally but you naturally tend to see episodic swelling in those individuals and i think some of this you know we can go back to the beginning and say well is it chicken or egg did the first procedure possibly set us up for this but anyone who's had like a uh, pick arthroplasty or, or especially something that's like retropatellar. So like behind your kneecap it, or the, the trochlear groove that your patella sits in, like it's pretty common in those people to see intermittent swelling with like daily activities. So there it's like, unfortunately this is the hand that tends to go with the surgery. Yeah. But those folks generally would not have locking of their, of their joint either. Right. The, the swelling would be correct, like sort of well characterized and then also like pretty regular s secondary to already being surgerized or, well, I'll even call it medicalized because yeah. it's not like you've <laughs> had one of these procedures, but are unaware of it. You know, it's kind of one of, one of those things you, you're, you're aware, but the, the locking thing tends to be a pretty unique, uh, sort of function. Um, also folks who have had like a simultaneous injury to their ACL, which again, you would know because you've been evaluated. It's it's unlikely that you're at home and you're like, I'm diagnosing myself with an ACL injury and a meniscus injury, but effectively on imaging, you see, uh, you know, multiple sort of issues with the knee. And those folks, I think probably would benefit from a referral to orthopedic surgery, uh, particularly if they're very, very symptomatic. Yeah, uh, but still, even in the ACL case, uh, I think the evidence is starting to come along that likely we are even doing reconstructions too often. You know, if an individual is the only reason we do, or the, the highest level of evidence we have for doing ACL reconstructions is not that it decreases your risk of osteoarthritis. It, it increases the likelihood of you returning to level one sports. So sports that involve running, jumping, cutting or jumping, cutting specifically. So 
if you tore your ACL and meniscus playing a flag football game, but your daily job is walking around a warehouse, like you probably don't need an ACL reconstruction and we can get into the weeds arguing about the likelihood of a meniscectomy or some type of advanced procedure there. Yeah, I think I think uh, eventually we, all roads lead to Rome here in a way, though, because even if I, I even if you start with this conservative management, if nothing is improved after a long period of time, really trying to find an entry point for activity, modifying these things, and just can't get ahead, I think people. This is a relatively rare situation, but people will just say, "Well." I just got to keep trying. And it's like, well, at this point, you might benefit from that surgical evaluation. And it's kind of like, I see two major issues in the rehab space. Well, three, really. Issue number one, which is far more prevalent than anything else I'm about to discuss, is underloading and undertraining just in general. Like the the rehab workouts are not hard enough, not frequent enough, not uh, dosed high enough to actually cause any sort of change. But people in general tend to get better as time progresses. But when they don't, you're like, well, was the training enough to like really move the needle? That's far more common, far more prevalent across just all what I think in in the rehab setting. But alternatively, you have people that are really, they're go-getters. They want it there. I'm ready to change stuff. Let's go. And, but they don't change enough. It's still too heavy, too difficult, whatever. And they never sort of find that entry point where they can be either their symptoms go down, the pain goes down. And it's like, we, we need to modify things enough to take enough load off the individual to get them back to a, a, to a greater level of function. Uh, and then the third, the third part would be like, you're doing all that, but it's happening for too long. And it's like, you have not like you need to go to the next level of intervention mm-hmm. if you really want to get back to where you were. That's far less common than than the first two, I think, but it's still a potential possibility. No, I, I think it's certainly a possibility. And I have referred more than a few people to ortho for procedures. And I think a lot of the job of rehab is serving as that governor. It's either mm-hmm. we need to throttle up and, and get you being more active or we need to throttle back and get you to maybe not be pushing as hard into symptoms as you currently are. But the third component to that, to your analogy is sometimes it's like, yeah, man, um, this ain't going to fix itself. Like we, we need to kick this up the chain and, and likely talk procedural. Yeah. Yeah. During, I think when people, they're almost remiss to do that because they're like, Oh, I've failed. I'm giving up. There's nothing left that I personally am in control of to like help myself out, you know? Um, but I don't view it like that as, at, at all. It, it's almost, okay, you're going to take responsibility and kick this up the chain, but still the rest of your body is available <laughs> for improvements or at the very worst maintenance, you know, um, so that you can come out of surgery if needed in, at least in the, a better, ideally a better place of fitness, um, or at least in the same place that you're at right now without this massive detraining that typically occurs when people, uh, reduce activity, reduce exercise and and that sort of stuff, particularly with injuries. Yeah, I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. All right. So let's, let's get into the nitty gritty here about how to, uh, address an individual with knee pain without locking and persistent swelling. So we're trying to find this entry point, like what should they be doing uh, for their activity and for their exercise. I kind of view the initial phase as this exploratory phase. Like, what can you do? And that incorporates what do you have access to equipment-wise, time-wise, other training resources. Um, and again, it's from top to bottom, from walking all the way up to li- lifting weights uh, and other conditioning modalities. So where do you start on that? If Is it an open-ended question? Like, yeah, what are you currently able to do? And then you kind of suss it out from there, or do you start differently than that? No, that is one of the the first questions, but some of it comes from the question before that of what have you tried? Mm -hmm. Because if the answer is, well, I haven't really done anything. I've been resting. Then I'm kind of slanting towards that. We'll throttle up. How can we start talking about getting active again? Whereas if it's, well, I went back and trained on Thursday and it blew up again, then I'm probably slanting a little bit more towards the throttle back side of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a good rule of thumb. I I typically like to do this exploratory phase under what I again, consider low stakes, 
you know, or, or uh, low stakes uh, sort of challenges. So mm-hmm. if somebody, if, if you ask somebody, Hey, can you squat? And they're like, mm. uh, particularly if they squatted before, rather than program a squat workout where they go in, get under a barbell, I'm likely having them do that at their home it, with some sort of like fail safe. So grab onto the counter, do an assisted bodyweight squat, see like, do you have pain at any of the range of motion? And if so, like how much? And if somebody's like, yeah, you know, I could pop down to a, a squat to the bottom and I feel fine. They're like, that's encouraging. Can you do that without assistance? Ideally with some sort of fail safe that if they were to potentially fall or, you know, lose their balance, that something catastrophic does not occur. And if they pass those two checks, I'm like, shoot, we might be able to load a squat, you know, which is, this is not typical of an acute sort of meniscus injury. Those folks tend to be pretty sensitive if it's uh, like pretty close thereafter, some sort of trauma, but that's kind of what I'm, the lines that I'm thinking about rather than saying, all right, we'll just go to the gym with this plan. I kind of want to have the gym plan be an uh, an iteration of what they can do at home. So that way they don't go into the gym and everything fails. <laughs> like, well, I couldn't squat. Mm-hmm. So I moved on to the next thing. Ah, I couldn't do that either. I moved on to the next thing. Couldn't do that. And so, um, yeah, you're going to get a sense of what people can do. Um, so most uh, of the time when I have individuals start at the gym, I like to give like rails. So instead of saying three sets of 10, four sets of 10, I try and say, I want you doing as many reps as you're comfortable with, but no more than 10 or 12 for weight selection. And then through tolerable range of motion and trying to talk what, or talk through what that tolerable range is. Um, Sometimes I'll raise it, write it as a, we'll start trying with a back squat. If that's an issue, then I want to try it with a hack squat, put your feet up higher and trying to work our way through what is tolerable and find where that entry point is. So the, the first couple of workouts will often have kind of, much more verbiage with them on trying to figure out what's tolerable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving them sort of like an algorithm, right? So if we're starting like with a back squat with normal tempo, full range of motion, et cetera, depending on what they have access to them, I might move them then to like a pin squat to a, you know, at parallel or slightly above parallel. Then I might add a tempo if they can't tolerate that. And if none of those things work, then I'm like, okay, maybe we graduate to a machine if, if we need to. Um, similar sort of thing. Start with the biggest range I can get to, then add tempo, then add, then reduce the range of motion. Effectively, you're you're trying to do uh, find an entry point that they can tolerate. And uh, the additional layer of uh, sort of load reduction here is going to be keeping the rep scheme in that sort of ten to fifteen rep range, RPE six to seven. Um, and that RPE is not really strictly related to repetitions in reserve. It's more like repetitions you should do left in reserve <laughs> and com- communicating that can be tricky because if you're like, Oh yeah, take uh, 12 reps at RP seven. They're like, cool. I need three reps left in the tank. I got to send it. It's like, well, this is a squishier repetitions in reserve, but at the same token, you can't really tell people like just lift this much weight because that is not an effective way to communicate loading either. So you're kind of dancing around the, the subject of like pain symptoms that people might experience during the activity. And the way I communicate it is that on a scale of one to 10, your pain ideally should not, you know, go above like a four. And then if you think that doing more reps or heavier weight at the same rep range, um, is going to make that happen, just cut it off. We've, we've kind of established the, the entry point we've done, we've done what we need to do for this first session and we can build from there. There's no real reason to send it today. And I should say that that first or exploratory session, or maybe even first week of exploratory sessions in this particular setting is not all lower body based. There might be two, three challenges we'll say, or exploratory exercises in a given session, but there's a lot of upper body work in there too, because I still want them to get something out of the workout. And, and again, it's not just resistance training. This in addition, in addition to that, we're talking conditioning and that's where we're starting. Right. And so I think people get a general sense of that. We've talked about that in, again, the pain and training, what do article and a number of other podcasts, like, all right, we're finding an entry point. Here's how we do it. How do people progress from there? Like where, like, is there a green light or some sort of indication that occurs to you based on all your experience where it's like, okay, now we can sort of, uh, move this person back towards a quote unquote, more normal rep scheme, lower rep scheme, uh, with heavier absolute weights we can get rid of the tempo uh we can switch to more uh 
challenging exercises, whether it's unilateral stuff that requires balance, like a split squat or uh, something like that. What, what indicates to you that a person is ready to progress? Uh, swelling and symptoms are very high up there. So if we're not having any symptoms after the workout, if there's no residual swelling, that will often kind of gear me that way. Also, a lot of times I will use like one or two drop sets as it were to kind of test the waters. So if we're doing pin squats, uh, I'll take a set or two and say, I want you to drop the pins one more and see how that tolerates and kind of just slowly scratch into it as it were. Um, there's a whole host of it and it really depends on a, a lot on the relationship I have with the athlete. Like if it seems like there's a, a good grasp on their own self-regulation, uh, I might be more likely to put out some, well, let's just see how it feels today and then take their feedback. Whereas if there's a little bit more of a, a YOLO vibe going on, there's probably going to be a little bit tighter constraints put in place. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in, in general, if things are well tolerated, uh, usually over a series of weeks, somewhere in that two to three week range, I feel pretty comfortable at lowering the rep scheme if the, that's a strategy I usually employ from the get go, uh, changing the tempo up to be more towards a quote unquote normal tempo, uh, and likely trying to either increase the range of motion or make the exercises that we've chosen more dynamically challenging. So, for example, if it was a pin squat, to parallel and now it's below parallel or we remove the pins as a sort of depth marker entirely or if it was a leg press now we're switching to maybe a more free weight uh um uh focused situation and again i do this every mm, two three four weeks something like that again keeping in line with their signs and symptoms if somebody is not progressing then i start thinking like okay let's regress even more I want to get ahead of this, but I'm more, uh, we'll just say aggressive in that way than I am at progressing them. If that makes sense. No, that absolutely. Yeah. If I haven't found a good entry point two weeks in, I'm like, okay, let's circle the wagons. Let's go back even further. Try to find, try to get some purchase here. Um, because if we can't, you know, if I haven't made any progress in four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, I want to be sure that it's not due to a programming error, you know? I want to be sure like, hey, maybe this is something that actually warrants an additional uh, evaluation or intervention. I don't want to just say, ah, well, just, you're, you're likely to, to get better and it's fine. I just want to kind of make sure all my ducks are in a row. Uh, and then if they are progressing, then again, it's pretty conservative every few weeks, just ratchet the dose up, ratchet the dose up. Uh, and yeah, uh, trying to take steps forward as often as possible. I don't have a good sense of how long this is going to take for people to get back. 100% unrestricted movement, but that's that's my goal for them. Um, a lot of that depends on what they were doing before and how like far advanced they were, right? The person who was doing an Olympic weightlifting program and like playing rec, you know, soccer or whatever has a lot more demands and a lot more sort of criteria that they need to meet than the person who's like, yeah, I just want to walk unassisted and, you know, exercise to meet physical activity guidelines. It's like, okay, those are two different people that have two different sort of levels of uh, uh physical demands they place upon themselves regularly so those two people would have different arcs so to speak i think but even for that second one I, I think how i tend to program is more of a trying to get a little bit every day kind of the, the movement snack approach if you will in trying to always frame that conversation of if today we can walk for five minutes before we start having symptoms and we go after a week and we're at 10 minutes we're still well short of the 20 minute grocery store trip, but you've doubled your time and trying to, to frame that progress where you can. I, I don't think, you know, earlier we touched on the underdosing of exercise. There are individuals that certainly need that really low dose, but part of really what you're trying to convey then is to make it interesting, fun, enjoyable, whatever positive connotation you want to assign to where they want to do more as things start feeling better. And it, it, the dose, an under or over dosage is really contingent upon where the athlete is. And it, without knowing where they are in the timeline and where their symptoms are, like what the program you may show me that I may snicker at may be amazingly appropriate for someone who has a, a super acute knee. But, you know, if you 
give me that same program and you have an ultra marathoner who's been running it for eight weeks and they're already back to running 30 miles on their own without issue, then probably time to evaluate a little bit more. I would say there's probably no special exercise that I would program or special exercises that I would program for an individual with knee pain that we think may be attributable to a meniscus injury um, or even knee pain just in general. But I will tell you that I tend to focus on uh, trying to get the most aggressive type of uh, knee movement pattern that I can get at that entry point. Meaning that people will say, ah, you squat in a way, um, to to keep your knees back. For example, just, you know, sit back more, get the, don't let your knees travel forward or whatever. That is a way to squat. And that is a way that I can have people squat, but if, and only if they need it, I would prefer that people squat with more knee travel forward, uh, and whatnot. So I'm trying to get people to, uh, do those types of exercises. So it would be, you know, this person with knee pain, uh, if they can't acutely tolerate something like a front squat or high bar back squat, or even a goblet squat with the load being much reduced, I yeah, look, if they want a low bar squat in a, with a wide stance and sit way back into their hips and hamstrings and posterior chain and all that sort of stuff. And that's the only type of squat pattern that they can tolerate with a barbell. That's fine. I'm just going to have to address that same issue from another angle, which might be a leg press or a hack squat or uh, some sort of uh, unilateral movement where their knee is going far forward. Because again, I want them to be able to tolerate all these different movement patterns and again, have unrestricted movement if, and when they need it. Uh, so I, I just want, don't want people to take away from this. Like, yeah, you can, there are spe- special exercises for the meniscus or there are things you have to avoid. It's more so uh, just having a well-rounded program that again gives people options to move. And I, I wouldn't avoid anything just like I wouldn't necessarily prioritize any particular thing outside of having all these different options. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And, and the thing I try and convey as best as I can, as often as I can, is to your modification, like we may d- need to do this right now. Mm-hmm. But I don't want this to be a forever modification. We need to find ways of, of trying to get you back into the pattern that, or patterns that may be best for this scenario. Yeah. Uh, all right. So to, to wrap this up, let's think about just, we'll, we'll go through a list. Uh, I'll, I'll break this up into three different phases, this exploratory phase, like learning to like, what are the entry points, uh, middle phase where people are, you know, progressing along, but they're still having some symptoms. And then a final phase, which is like that bridge to return to normal activity. Right. And so I want to pick three squat pattern movements for each and three hinge pattern movements for each. And I, I think what you'll, what people will see is this sort of like progression that we have in mind that gradually require more and more dynamic stability and sort of movement control and also more and more uh, exposure to um, a lot of knee flexion and like anterior knee translation or knees over the toes for example so i might start out with somebody uh, with either a leg press where their feet are placed up high um, to make it to have less sort of knee travel forward I might also start out with something like a good morning um, where you get a little knee flexion, but it's mostly hip flexion. I might also start out with uh, something like a uh, back squat tempo to above parallel. Uh, I might, if they can tolerate it, a regular deadlift. If they can't tolerate that, it might be a stiff legged deadlift. If they, if uh, that ends up being problematic, it might be a Romanian deadlift with dumbbells because it's a load sort of thing. Um, trap bar deadlift, trap bar deadlift from blocks, uh, hip thrusts. If they can set that up, that to me, if somebody's got really symptomatic with their knee, setting up a hip thrust situation, if they don't have a machine available to them seems maybe problematic, but they could probably do it with a dumbbell, uh, for example. Although then you run the risk of it not being heavy enough, but that, you know, at this phase, I'm, I'm less concerned. I just want to get them moving. Um, and so I think about those things, ham, line, hamstring curl, uh, leg extensions. Those are all things that I start thinking about in this particular phase. What, what say you? Um, I'm up for all of those. I will break out the half field squat occasionally, mm-hmm. uh, 
if especially if it's somebody who's familiar with an SSB, uh, I will sometimes have them do a split squat, but put their front knee up against a uh, bench. That way it can't translate forward mm-hmm. and have them go tolerated range from there. Uh, yep. Spanish squats are always uh, in play. So mm-hmm. just something to where I can control some of the constraints a little bit more. Um, yep. I think I think you can tell where a lot of us train and that if we slant more leg press or hack squat, because my inclination is always hack squat. And I think it's partially because it's the first machine I see when I walk into the gym. Right, right. Like, oh, yeah, I can put someone's feet super high up there and, you know, get them to set back. Or even something like a belt squat to where, you know, you can have somebody hold on and, and get way back if you want to. Yeah. So. Yeah. I would, I would agree with all that. The, the Hatfield stuff would be super useful if people can set that up. Um, when I think, start thinking about this like intermediate phase where people are less symptomatic, but not quite ready for us to release the Kraken and they're back to full, full activity. Um, I start thinking about again, regular barbell squats, if they can tolerate something like a high bar back squat or a front squat, um, I would prefer that over a low bar squat only again, to sort of get people more desensitized to that knees forward position, uh, deeper, greater amount of knee flexion. I would probably at this point incorporate a tempo into that just to sort of, uh, avoid any, uh, type of movement pattern modifications that person might put upon themselves due to fear. Um, and so if I warrant a tempo, we can kind of like bypass that. So I would probably prefer a high bar back squat or a front squat. I would start, to incorporate unilateral stuff, um, like a split squat, um, or step ups or something like that. Again, usually with some assistance, they could be holding onto a rack if they need to, or, uh, something for balance, uh, get to lower the stakes here. And it may, may include a tempo depending on symptoms. Um, uh, I also start thinking about, uh, again, direct isolation stuff. So leg extensions again would be something I would, I would probably consider regular deadlifts again are on the menu. Uh, maybe even sumo, just given the uh, sort of rotation of the foot and the wider stance may be uh, useful here. Um, and then other sorts of uh, hinge exercises. Again, good mornings might be in this one. Uh, RDLs, stiff-legged deadlifts, uh, line hamstring curl, particularly unilateral stuff um, because there's likely to be some sort of pain-related strength uh, discrepancy. And so being able to load that directly um, would be useful. I think that's kind of my intermediate phase. You, uh, you have something different that you do here. Yeah. I, I think this is, it, it depends on what the athletes try to get back to because I, I, I think you definitely slant more power lifting than I do. <laughs> I slant more Real like figure. let's throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks as far as athleticism goes. Um, because I want some lighter things where you're starting to have to move faster. So yeah. I might do something like a deceleration lunge where you're having to pick your foot up and like catch the ground and there. It's just trying to get some of that like quick impulse to the knee and, and not like me having to have you do a maximum jump matter or, or manner. Or if I'm going to introduce squats, a lot of times, like I agree with everything you said, but I might have somebody as a hypothetical, their working set is a hundred kilo. Uh, we might hit four sets of eight at RPE six there or whatever. And then I'll call for one or two sets at like 60 kilo where I want you trying to go as like competition speed as you can as a way of like touching on some of that speed a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I start, I start to think about that in the third phase. Like that's my, I like walking lunges, for example, in that, in that phase. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's a, it's a similar idea. It's like, all right, we're going to progressively increase the demands uh, for not only stability, but also velocity. And that needs to track along with this desensitization sort of arc that we're building. And so I think if you're dealing with somebody who's got knee pain, whether or not it's attributed to meniscus or whatever, that's kind of like your overall, overall uh, sort of programming heuristic is gradually increase the demands that the person needs to be uh, tasked with as their fitness improves, as their skills improve, as their symptoms um, uh, decrease, uh, and ultimately, again, end up in this sort of nirvana state where they're unrestricted for movement. Because ultimately, you just don't want somebody that 20 years later, yeah, I got this knee thing, I can't do lunges, or I can't do split squats or I can't do front squats. And it's like, well, you don't need, you could live a full and complete life without doing any of those things, training, any of those things, but wouldn't you like to have access to them if you needed them for some reason, you know, just like 
have it in the bag if you wanted to. That's kind of the way I view this sort of movement uh, uh, sort of selection. It's like I want people to be able to do anything they want, anything they want uh, without sort of restriction. Uh, and when those restrictions pop up, I'm like, yeah, we should probably train that in a systematic manner. Yeah, I'm here for all of that. I think it is just, especially if we're talking about the 25 to 50 year old client, I think a lot of times we have, um, I'll call it the Toby Keith effect, where we, we think we can do it once, just not as good as we once were at it. And we don't necessarily have enough or any exposures to some of these movements to where we dial it in like, oh, I could squat if I want to. Okay. Like prove it. And (laughs) right, right, right. It's not necessarily, it needs to be like a full on like machismo challenge. It's just, well, like odds are you're not going to be as good at it, but if you put a little bit of practice, you're going to be exponentially better. So sometimes in that last little bit of like accessory work, GPP programming, it's like, well, how can I throw in some things that remind you that you are athletic? You do need to do something quick. You, there are components to landing, jumping, accelerating, decelerating. 10 out of 10, I'm in agreement. All right. Well, that has been episode 229, the Meniscus Injury Podcast with Dr. Derek Miles. Make sure you check out his article over on the website. By the time you listen to this, it will be up and available uh, to read. So check that out if you liked it, share it, do all that sort of fun stuff. Thanks to Dr. Derek Miles for joining us. Check out all the links in the description below. But before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.